Well, good morning, MCC. Hope you guys are feeling good. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Trent. I have the unbelievable privilege of being the lead pastor here at MCC. If today is your very first time somebody invited you in, first of all, thank you for uh, trusting them enough to go to a church. I know that going to a church for the very first time can be intimidating, awkward, and we're just glad that you would take a chance on us. Uh, we believe you're in the right spot. We'd love to have a chance to get to know you. Um, you can fill out one of those connect cards right there in the chair in front of you, and that's an easy way to fill that out. After church is over, you can take it straight out of those doors. There's a table there set up and a, a big smiling group of faces who'd love to just get to know you, meet you, and uh, answer any questions you have about who we are as a church. Uh, I want to talk to you about a couple things going on before we dive in today. Um, we just exited this series uh, called uh, Economic Atheists, and we were talking about trying to get our money right. And one of the things we know is we can hear what God's Word says about all that, and that's great, but there comes a time we have to actually start doing things differently. And you need that practical help, tools, and guidance in that. And so starting on the 18th of March, 18th of March, so Wednesday night, uh, we're starting Financial Peace University. Because again, as a hope, as our church, man, we want to do everything we can to help you uh, live the life that God is calling you to live. And figuring out that area of finances is a big part of that. So child care will be provided for the class. Uh, the class is going to meet here on Wednesday nights uh, from 6.30 to 8.00. Uh, there's a cost for the class. The, co- the class costs 50 bucks. But hey, if you're here and you're going, hey, uh, the, the whole reason I need to go to Financial Peace is because I ain't got 50 bucks to spare. That's fine, friend. We, we'll, we'll, whatever we have to do to help you, we will help you. That's what God has put us here on earth to do. If you can pay it, fine. If you can't, come talk to us. We'll make something work. Okay? So today, we're starting a series called Breakout. And our hope in this series is that we would begin to be the people who God has called us to be. But in order for us to do that, we have to break out of some of the things that are holding us back. And so today, we're going to be talking about breaking out of the false identity that sometimes a lot of us have. Next week, we're going to be talking about breaking out of one of the things that we're more afraid of than doing what I'm doing right now, standing on stage and talking in front of humans. We're going to be talking about a fear of rejection. And how we can break out of the fear of rejection. Week three, we're going to circle right on back and talk about identity again. Because it's that important. Week four, we're going to be talking about breaking out of anxiety. So if you're, if you're someone who uh, struggles with that or you know someone who does, week four would be a great opportunity to bring them in. I believe every single week of the series is going to be one where breakthroughs happen for people. And one of the things I'm really excited about is on the 21st of March, it's a Friday night, we're going to be having a worship night together as a church. It's going to be one of the first ones with these that we've ever done as a church. And so we're going to gather in here together as a church collectively and just lift praise to God. Because here's the deal. When we worship him in spirit and truth with all our hearts, that is what God uses as a weapon to allow us to be able to break out of some of the things that the enemy has put around us. And we just believe, man... We're going to come in, we're going to do it on our Sunday, we sing our four songs, we hear a sermon, we go home. But what if God's people gather together on a Friday night while the rest of the world is doing God knows what, and we sang praise to Him, lifted Him up, and saw what He could do in our lives and in through our lives for the sake of our city. So that's what's coming up. I'm going to pray and we're going to dive into what we have for today. Jesus, 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 it is only you that can change a human heart. It is only you who can mend a broken heart. Abba Father, I know I'm talking to a room full of people who may have wounds today. Maybe some self-inflicted wounds. Maybe some wounds they had no control over. But even the mention 
of the word father brings up memories that are not pleasant. Brings up hopes that are lost. Brings up wishes that have passed empty. So today I pray, if nothing else, that you would show your people through the power of your word what type of father you are and what it means to be a child of a father like you. In your name, amen. We'll start out today, not by a drum solo, but by asking you a question. Inside joke, last week I started the sermon with a, a drum solo. If you're new, that's why they're laughing. Today I want to start out with a question. Question simple. Who do you think you are? Not like, why haven't you sat down yet? Or why'd you get up to go to the bathroom during my sermon? Who do you think you are? I would never be that guy. But who do you think you are? Like, when you think of you, who do you think of? You in your head. You the person that you really want to be. Who, who, who do you think you are? What things do you say about yourself? You got some of that, that train rolling? See, today I want to lean into this idea of identity because um, as we journey through this series, we're going to be actually sticking in primarily the book of 1 Peter. So if you're trying to figure out, hey, what should I go study at home? or what, what, I'm trying to find some place to read in the Bible. If you're, you haven't found anything yet, I go to the book of 1 Peter because that's all throughout this course of the series. We're going to be diving into that book because he has some things. He was talking to a group of churches who were experiencing persecution, they were experiencing pain, they were experiencing rejection and suffering. And he's writing to this group of people who are experiencing a lot of the same things that we experience. In the midst of experiencing all the hardships of life, he knew that one of the main questions that these people were going to be asking was, okay, who am I? And can I get through this? Is it possible that I can not be defined by what's happening to me and be defined by something greater and something different? And so Peter is writing to this group of people, and we're going to dive into that today. What I know as we get into talking to a series on this is, up front, I have to let you know that as we begin to talk about having a false identity, that false identity comes from the fact that, guys, we all have an enemy. There's a good in this world, no doubt, but on the same side, there's an evil in this world, no doubt. A lot of times we try to pretend like it's there or we try to look for it under every leaf and nook and cranny. You've met those people and you're like, that's not the devil. That's you forgetting to pay your bills. Um, And you've met the people who deny its existence. But there's a real life enemy. And Jesus was talking about this enemy one time. He says, he says, the enemy is a thief and he comes to steal and kill and destroy. And one of the primary things that this enemy that we have, the Bible calls him Satan, one of the primary things that he wants to steal is our identity. See, because Satan knows if he can get you to think bad of you, then there's no good that you will do. And see, Satan's job or his desire in this is not to get you to have no identity, to just be this amorphous blob of human. His job, his role, what he's trying to do is to get you to have a false identity. And all of us in this room, man, we have done so many different things to try to create this false identity. And, and, and social media has helped us with this because we can be whoever we want to be online, right? I could post, I could curate all my pictures and you would think, that guy is really into fishing. And the reality is, I fish maybe four or five times a year. You would think our family is just the most precious, loving, beautiful family. But the reality is, 
It's chaos. <laughs> and yours is too. And see, we all have different things that we let define and become our identity. Whether or not it's the amount of money we make or where we work. You know, one of the first time, you know, especially with fellas, you know, one of the first things we ask, hey man, what's your name? What's your name? What do you do? That's like the, that's like the second question. What's your name? What do you do? Okay, I know who you are now. How many kids do you have? We get defined by where we're at or where we're not at based off this kind of point in life. Oh, well, you're 32. Well, oh, you're married? Kids? House? Farm? You have a farmhouse now. That's, that's 2020, you got a farmhouse. And a lot of times we get defined by the mistakes that we've made in our past. We feel like, well, I'm just an addict. Or I'm just an adulterer. Or I'm just... Someone who had an abortion a long time ago. We get defined by other things. We get defined by the words that people speak over us. That kindergarten teacher who told you something. And then the second grade teacher said the same thing. And then the fifth grade teacher said the same thing. And by fifth grade, you're like, well, that's true, I guess. Or you had a parent who every time you were around, one of the recurring phrases that you heard in your home was why can't you just be more like your brother? Why can't you just be more like your sister? And you've lived in someone else's shadow trying to be like someone else your whole entire life. And see, there's all these different things that determine our identity and they're, they're powerful shapers of our identity. But I believe if you trace all of these things back, I believe at the root of the things that we do to create an identity for ourselves, whether it's, you know, the, the, the jock or the cheerleader. It's funny how so many things are still a high school cafeteria in life. Whatever it is, what I found in working with people, as long as I have, is if you trace a lot of those things that people find their false identities in, that causes the good they see in their life, and some that even causes the bad that they see in their life, a lot of those things are traced back to their father, to who their dad was, what type of dad they had. What type of dad did you have? What was your father like? I'm willing to bet a lot of what you do and what you don't do is based off of what he did and didn't do. And I, I don't mean to be uh, gender specific today or, or single out one contingency of our, our room today, but the reality is, friends, as I go through this book cover to cover, I can't get over the fact that when God chose to identify himself, he chose to use the word father. And so for us men of God in this room, there's some, there's some weight to that. And for us, everybody in this room, men of God, women of God, it's understanding that that role is critical. And one of Satan's strategies, in, in the, and he understands the criticalness of this role, what he knows if the, is if he can crack our concept and our perception of an earthly father, he has a head start in cracking our concept and perception of who God is as a heavenly father. And so since he knows that if I can get them to think bad of an earthly father and to think that they're messed up and jacked up, then chances are they're never going to know who God the Father in heaven really is. And he's doing a knock-up job at that. Currently, right now, 43% of U.S. children live without their fathers. Right now, 90% of homeless and runaway, runaway children are from fatherless homes. 
And here's the one that breaks my heart. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. See, the role of a father is critical. And it's no accident that these stats are this way. This is not an accident. This is a strategy. And see, Peter was really aware of this strategy. See, Peter was a guy who spent a a good portion of his adult life um, leading out of what was this mission of Christ. And for what we know, at least three years he spent with Jesus, by his side, hearing Jesus teach about who God was. And primarily, Jesus teaches that God is a father, a loving father. That's, that's the basis of, of Jesus' teaching about God is as him as father. And so it's crazy, guys, that we would even have this book of 1 Peter, if you remember Peter's story. See, Peter was this guy who, on the night that Jesus was going to be betrayed, was surrounded by people who were asking him, Hey, don't you know Jesus? And at the threat of having something potentially be bad physically happening to him, Peter goes, mm I don't know him. And then, under the threat of a ferocious middle school girl around a campfire who comes up to him and goes, but you kind of sound like one of his guys. I'm pretty sure I saw you with him. He begins to swear and to curse her, this little girl, saying, I swear I don't know him. And I don't want you to miss the irony in the fact that this man, who was terrified of facing physical harm for knowing Jesus is now writing a letter to a group of churches encouraging them to stand strong, to be brave, to not fear what may happen to them physically if they continue to believe in Jesus. Friends, that doesn't happen without this thing called the Holy Spirit. And I want you to see, I want to lay the enemy's tactics kind of right out here because in this guy Peter and in this guy Judas, uh, most people know Judas, we think of Judas, he's the guy who betrayed Jesus, he's the reason Jesus died, he's the guy who gave him away for 30 pieces of silver. We, we, we got that, but then there's this guy Peter. What I want you to do is I want you to look at these guys really on a level playing field because both of them in essence did the exact same thing. They said, I don't know him, I'm denying him, I am at the bottom line betraying him. See, Judas did it financially. Peter did it to save his own hide. Judas did it to earn. Peter did it to save. But what happens here in these two guys is you see how God would love for us to go in the midst of our shame and our pain and how the enemy would love for us to go. If you know Judas' story, Judas' story did not end happy. Judas in the midst of all of his guilt and all of his shame, how he had betrayed and let down Jesus, he got to this place where he said, there is no hope for me. I am too far gone. I am ending my own life. And Judas killed himself. He hung himself. The difference between Judas and Peter is Peter was willing to face his own darkness and know that God could bring him out of that. He was able to hold on to this hope. And I think you've got to get to a place where you understand that in the battle of your mind, that is what the enemy wants to do. Because here's the deal. The people who commit suicide, and suicide rates in our country are skyrocketing. The people who do that, they get to this place where they have lost hope. 
And that's where the enemy wants you. And so from the get-go, I, I want us to come to this place where we realize, okay, life is going to be hard. Life is going to be painful. In the same way that this early church that Peter was writing to, man, they were facing opposition and persecution from all things on the outside. It's a little bit different in our age for now. Most of our opposition, most of our oppression is not coming from the outside in. It's in our mind. It's in our thoughts. It's the anxiety-ridden. It's the, the crazy thoughts of even suicide. It's the crazy thoughts of us going, hey, what's my worth? What's my purpose? I don't measure up. I'm not good enough. I'll never be good enough. I don't have what it takes to raise this family. I don't have what it takes to keep this marriage pure. I don't have what it takes to beat this pornography. I'm just a slave to this. I've had this sin since middle school, and it's not gone anywhere. I'm just a slave to this. See, our battle and our persecution is not something that's necessarily on the outside. More often than not, it's something that's on the inside. And that's where the enemy is winning. So Peter's writing to a church that's facing opposition on the outside. But I believe there's so much truth that you can get right now for your life. Because I know in between your ears, you're facing that opposition as well. And so this is what he writes. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 3. He says this. He gives this beautiful introduction that I'd love to dive into. But we're going to start right here as he, as he launches into this uh, beautiful passage. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, According to his great mercy, he has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Thick, thick verse. I want to walk you through this, help pick this apart so you really gain a theological, deeper understanding of what he's actually saying here. Okay? Y'all with me? Okay. You sure? You didn't sound. Okay, now we're good. Okay, good. Okay, first of all, go to the word where he starts out. He says, according to his great mercy. His great mercy you could take the H, the G, and the M, and you can capitalize those letters because God's great mercy is a man named Jesus. Let me explain something to you that a lot of people have no idea. They hear you know, preachers get up and talk about God's mercy and God's grace, and they don't have any idea what those are. They're just two different things, I guess, and they're kind of nice words. It's like, that's good, that's better. There's a difference. Grace is this. Grace is when you get something that you did not earn and do not deserve. That is grace. Mercy is different. Mercy is when you don't get the punishment that you did deserve for failing or missing the mark. And so when it says here, by God's great mercy, God's great mercy is a man named Jesus who took the punishment that you actually deserved on the cross, who lived the life that you should have lived, a perfect one, and died the death that you should have done, a sinner's one, so that you can say, by his great mercy... I now have a way into this family. It'd be like if both of my boys at the house, uh, there's this big vase-looking thing, I don't know what it is, uh, on the table in the dining room. And if it got broken, and I brought the boys into the living room, and, and Titus was the one who broke it. I didn't know who broke it, but, uh, you know, I got in there, and I said, buddies, okay, who broke this thing? And I looked at Ezra, the two-year-old, and I said, Ezra, did you break this thing? And through his cute little two-year-old voice, maybe even with passy in mouth, he would go, no, dada. And then Titus and his closer to six-year-old smart aleck would go, dad, I broke it. See, mercy would be me withholding a whooping from Titus and giving it. 
to his little brother Ezra. God's mercy is him withholding punishment from you as a son or daughter and giving it to his only begotten son. That's what mercy is. Okay, we're getting mercy. Jesus is mercy. From here, he says, because of this great mercy, you have been born again. Now we hear that word and we're like, what are we talking about here? We have been born again. For those of you who are kind of like me, and you feel like from your earthly father, you missed out on some things that you really wanted. Here's the good news of the potential to be born again. Born again gives us a second shot at a father. Being born again gives us an opportunity to say, yes, my earthly dad was messed up. And, and yes, he, he did some things that, that weren't perfect. And, and maybe even for you in this room, you had a great dad. Here's newsflash though. As great as he was, he pales in comparison to the heavenly father that you have. And so regardless, whether it's the worst dad you can imagine or the best dad you can imagine, we all are still in desperate in this need of being born again. And see, being born again, it doesn't necessarily take the sting away of a father who failed you. But what it does is it gives you a chance to come in and actually experience a loving heavenly father. Not who is a better version of an earthly father, but who is the perfect representation. Who is not a copy, but who is the real thing as a father. And that's what we have. And that's what it means to be born again. So we're not just born again. He says we're born again in this thing called a living hope. I want you to understand here, in regards to our identity... And how we fake and pose and do all these different things to curtail who we are to make other people think we're actually got it better together than we really do. A lot of that is tied to what we're hoping in. See, if we're hoping just to be a self-made man, well then I'm not going to ask you for help. I'm not going to borrow your tools. I'm not going to admit that I'm actually struggling with anxiety and I'm, I, I'm getting one of those little airplane liquor bottles on the way home and I'm chugging it in the parking lot uh, before I walk into the apartment because I, I, I can't handle the stress and anxiety. So I don't want to even walk into the house until I, I do something to calm my nerves because I'm hoping and just being known as a self-made man. When, when you're hoping and, and, and just being the perfect mom, well, then I'm not going to tell anybody that I have days where I just want to leave the kids at Chick-fil-A <laughs> and escape and just go to some island where nobody needs me. And a lot of our hopes, they were like my hopes. They died early. See, for a lot of you, you grew up in a home, and maybe if, if you had dad in the house, he was your hero. He was the one who you wanted to be like. He, you thought he was the strongest person in the world. You thought he could beat up every other kid's dad. And you just, man, dad is the hero. For some of you, you didn't have that, and so you didn't even know what you didn't have. But for me, I, I know one of the deepest hopes in my heart as a father, as a son, was to say, I, I just want to I, I be in a good relationship with my dad. I just want to be the treasure. I want to be the apple of his eye. I want to be the one who he gives his affection to. I want to have the approval of my father. And I had all that hope in having that great dad, that perfect dad. And then the night where I watched him take his fist and, and hit my mother, hope died. 
And I watched Hope get in a Ford F-150 and back down a driveway and watch the headlights go. And, I got, and I'm going, Where's, my Hope is leaving. And for a lot of you, you've experienced that. And the world we live in does an absolutely terrible job of telling you what to do or giving you any sort of help and figuring out what do you do when that thing that you were hoping in dies? When that person, that career, that relationship, that job, that child that never came, what do you do when the hope dies? I felt that. Those of you who know my story, you know God restored my dad and I's relationship. And as he was an older man, and me as a, a guy in my late 20s, God had begun to restore our relationship. He had got clean and sober. God had been to restore our relationship. And you, if you're tracking hope on the graph, it's back high because dad's not an addict anymore. And so there's hope. There's hope in this relationship. And then my dad got cancer. And the hope dipped. It's like, oh, goodness gracious, we've got to make the most of our time. We've got to put some extra energy and effort here. And then my dad beat cancer. Oh, all right, we're back here. We've we got all this hope, man. There's hope, man. We've we got time. We've got plenty of time to work this stuff out, get all these wounds healed, have this perfect father-son relationship that I've always wanted and that you've always wanted. And then two and a half years ago, my dad was shot and killed. And again, I'm left at this place going, God, what do I do when hope dies? And that's one of the hardest places to be in in life. Where that thing that you're hoping in is no longer there. And you have to come to grips with that reality that you can't hope in this anymore because it's impossible. And this is why God says, I'm giving you birth into a living hope. I'm giving you the ability to be born again into a living hope, one that will not die. And when Jesus rose from the grave, that was him saying, boldly proclaiming to the rest of the world, I am going to die and then going to rise again because I was perfect in God. And because I rose again, I'm giving you new birth into a living hope, one that won't die because I killed death when I rose from the grave. And that's the new birth that we're born into, guys. One of the things that I've been identified for a lot of my life as is a ball player, baseball. Sports has been a huge part of my life, big part of my story. Um, I honestly felt like I didn't realize this until I went through some counseling. I grieved the loss of baseball almost just as much as I had grieved any other loss in my life because it was so much of my identity. And when I was no longer a baseball player, it was like, well, what am I? And now, as I've kind of worked through that, through some counseling, um, I'm, I'm, I'm finding my way back into, well, now I'm a baseball dad and I'm a coach. And so I'm loving having that aspect back in my life. And this year we started a, a new team. And uh, the way it works is you draft the kids to be on your team. And you don't really, you know, you, you see them kind of do some stuff and then you draft them to be on your team. And we're at the draft. And um, one of the things we've been praying, I, I've been asking the staff to pray for me, my wife had been praying for, was just, God, let this year be bigger than baseball. Like last year was my son Titus, my oldest son Titus' first year. And I'm going to be honest, guys, I made everything about him. There, there were a bunch of kids out there, were about nine kids out there, but in my eyes, there was one kid out there. And, you know, I think it came from a pure place, but at the end of the day, 
as a man of God and someone who I took the role to be a father figure to other kids, I felt like I missed the mark. And so this year I found myself just asking God, God, would you help me make it more than baseball? Would you put me and some of the other coaches who are also men of God, church-going, faithful guys, would you put some kids on our team who need father figures? Will you put some guys on our team, or some kids on our team who are just perfect matches, undeniable that you put them there for a reason? So I'm praying that. We'll go through the draft, get to practice, and there's a little girl on our team, her name's Charlotte. And um, we, we were kind of nervous about drafting a girl, but we were like, hey, man, who cares? What, what, we're gonna, what are we going to do? Um, we had uh, three kids to choose from. Two of them were boys, and we knew they didn't listen. And we said, hey, girls usually listen better than boys. <laughs> who cares? You know, we're going to teach our boys how to be respectful. We're going to put a girl on our team, and we're going to make the most of it. You know, we're gonna, and, and both of us, you know, I, I don't have any girls, so I was like, it'll be a learning experience for me. We're going to have fun. Um, and so we're at our first practice, and because it's rained like 70, 73 days in a row in Henry County, we're practicing indoors at a gym uh, at uh, Unity Grove Elementary School. And we're there in the gym, and the kids are just running around in the chaos. We kinda, we're trying to do stations, but they kind of do their thing at their station. They just kind of wander off, you know. And, and Charlotte, she's just such a free spirit. Like there's the alphabet on the wall, and she's just running around touching the letters. I'm like, hey, Charlotte, when, when you make, get it done with the alphabet, come back over here, and we're going to hit some more. And uh, she's just a sweet, little carefree little girl. And um, about halfway through the practice, so I'm hitting with some of the other kids, and I look over, and, and Charlotte's kind of about at the three-point line, and she's just sitting down um, on her butt, and she's just crying. And not like I'm pouting crying, but like I'm weeping crying. And... I go to Charlotte because, I, I mean, everybody, I don't know. There's only three coaches and, like, those, that, that amount of kids in a, in a gym felt like there were 70 of them. Um, and so <laughs> we're doing our best. And, and I just kind of go up to Charlotte, and she's there. She's kind of sitting down, and I just kind of go get on a knee with her. And I'm, I'm saying, hey, you know, sweetheart. And again, like, little girl tears are kind of, like, really intimidating for me. Um, <laughs> and so I, I just say, sweetheart, what, what, what's, what's going on? How can I help? And... Um, she looks at me and through the kind of crying she, she tells me I just miss my daddy my daddy my daddy's in heaven and we used to play baseball and I just miss my daddy and and I'm at right now trying not to cry and I'm at you know half court in a gym full of wild and crazy kids and just having a God moment and wiping tears off my eyes as this beautiful little girl is telling me um, that she's an answer to my prayer. And I say, sweetheart, I miss my daddy too. And, uh, and me and him used to play baseball a lot too. And that was one of the things we did that was really fun. And so I know, I know how sad that is because that makes me sad. I miss, I miss playing baseball with my dad too. And um, what if me and you went and played baseball together since we both kind of miss our dad. But what if both of us went and played baseball together? Uh, may, maybe it could make us not sad anymore. Or maybe it could make us happy. And um, I tell you that story just to say that one... I think God loves it when his children play, pray intentionally for other children. Like I think sometimes, man, it's really easy to get consumed with your wound. 
And one of the things that I've realized in my life, and it's the reason I'm telling you these stories, is if I've not found anything else in my life to be true, it is that God uses our wounds as weapons to fight back the darkness in other people's lives. But if you're consumed by it, you're going to miss opportunities for healing to happen. He's a good father. He loves you. And he says you're born again into this living hope. And to wrap up this passage, he says, it's being born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4. So you're born again in this living hope. What am I born again to? You're born again, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. Let's figure out what in the world he's saying there. It sounds good. It sounds, honestly, too good to be true. But let's figure out what he's actually saying. First thing is this. He's saying, you get a new family. You get a new family. And with a new family comes a new identity. One that is not bound to what you've done or not done, but one that is bound to God's great mercy, living and in display through the person of Jesus Christ. You get a new identity, not as a saved person, but as a redeemed and set free son or daughter of God. That is your new identity. With that comes a new hope. I've got a new identity and I've got a new hope. I don't have to live for the things of this world. I don't have to hope in the things of this world. I, and this is what Peter was writing to this, one of the recurring things you're going to see in here. He's writing to them, encouraging them. He's saying, this is not your home. You're in exile. Don't live for the things of the world. You weren't created for this world. You have an utterworldly father. You have a new hope. And he talks about this inheritance, and I love the language he uses. He says it's imperishable, undefined, undefiled, and unfading. Those three words mean something. When he says it's imperishable, what he's talking about here is this idea of an inheritance that God is saying, I have got what you need in heaven for you. I'm a loving father. I couldn't give you my whole inheritance to you right now because you'd waste it. I'm going to store it up in heaven for you. That's why, again, tying this all back in, that's why we talked about this whole economic atheist series. We said, don't store up stuff here. God's like, put your treasure in heaven where your father is. Send it on ahead. He says, it's imperishable, which means there is nothing that could ever take the balance of your inheritance down. It's not going anywhere. He says it's undefiled. What that means is, there is nothing that could come in as an outside source and pollute what is your inheritance. Nothing could cause it to fade. There's no rot. There's no mildew. There's no poison. There's nothing that can taint what God has coming your way. And the last way, this is my favorite way, he says it is an unfading inheritance. How do you remember your first drink of coffee? First drink of coffee. Maybe for some of you it was like it was disgusting, and then it was disgusting, and then it was disgusting, and I finally got to the place where I said, if I'm going to keep waking up at 6.30, I've got to put something in my body, and I'm just going to grin and bear it, and then you come to this place where you actually like it. But when you have that first sip of coffee, if it's good coffee, you go, hmm, and you get a little buzz, and you're like, yes, let's have that meeting. I'll, yeah, let's run that spreadsheet. 
Let's do that thing. Let's do, let's go. Because the caffeine has got you going. But then on your 7,972nd time of having a cup of coffee, you're just like, stinking spreadsheets. And it does nothing. Those of, you who, those of you who are recovering alcoholics or addicts in the room, you know that when something is strong at the beginning, our bodies develop tolerance to them. And the effects of what is coming in to our bodies, it fades over time. And what I love about heaven, what gives me so much hope and so much joy to go and to be with my father, is that that inheritance I will never, ever grow a tolerance to it. There will never be a day where I wake up in heaven in God's glory and go, ah, yeah, I mean, yesterday was so dope. I don't think today is going to be able to top it. There is never going to be a day like that in heaven. It is going to keep on getting better. I love that, that that's the type of inheritance that I have coming my way, and that's the type that you have as well. And so if we're going to lean into this, we got to understand that not only is that inheritance guarded in heaven for you, what he says in this last half is so powerful, so critical. Don't miss this. He says, it's kept in heaven for you. Then go to verse 5. Who, for you, who, the you is the who, by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What this means is that God is not just guarding your inheritance in heaven. He's not just guarding that for you. Right now, in this room, where you're at, he is guarding you for your inheritance through your faith in him. And church, that is powerful to know that right now, where you're at, you have a loving heavenly father who is fighting for you because he's saying, I have got something for you. And again, don't get misconstrued. Maybe, maybe some pastor told me, you got, a, you got a gold Bentley and a mansion with you know, great stuff on it. And it like, the reward of heaven is not good stuff. The reward of heaven is your father's face. That's the reward of heaven. That's, that's what's good about it. And I know it's hard to imagine in a very materialistic world that we live in, but that is the reward. And he says it's being ready to be revealed in the last time. What he means by this is like, it's not just that you got saved from hell. You got saved for heaven. And you're never going to experience the full salvation of what you were saved to until you're in that place. He says your mind is going to be blown when you get there. Because you think that you have joy in salvation right now. Think back to the moment where you feel like you got saved and you were at that camp and you were just crying and weeping and everything. So you're down on the altar. You got baptized. Think about that joy when that salvation happened. God says that's a foretaste. A week if that foretaste of what it's going to be like when you realize the revelation of my sanctification and salvation in its fullness when you stand before me in heaven. And that's what we have coming our way. And so I want you to know some really critical, powerful things in this. The first is this, that you don't have to fear man anymore. You don't have to fear what other people think about you. Jump down, it's in your teaching notes to 1 Peter verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 13. Look what it says in 1.13. He says, all right, you got your identity. You, you know who you are. Okay, now that that is somewhat figured out and you can spend the rest of your life chewing on that, figuring out what that means. Okay, now that you know who you are, I'm going to help you figure out what to do in light of that. 
And in verse 13 he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Christ. He's, again, he's saying there's a grace that's going to be revealed in that time that you're not even going to be able to get your mind around right now. But he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action. He's still internal. Peter knew that it was a, big, it was a mind game. He says, prepare your mind for actions. Gird your mind. Get ready to go. And he says, be sober-minded. And when he's talking about being sober-minded, friends, I don't think he's really talking about, like, don't get drunk. I think it's bigger than that. Because you know what is a more powerful intoxicant than alcohol? Insecurities. I've watched some people do some crazy things because of insecurities and fear. I've watched some amazingly beautiful high school girls give their purity and their heart away to some stupid, smelly boys out of insecurities. I've watched young men of God pose and posture and say things and do things and fight other guys and get themselves in a world of prison that they can't get themselves out of because of insecurities. I've watched men of God because the insecurities they had in their own heart and approval that they didn't feel like they were getting enough from their spouse go outside of that relationship and that marriage covenant and go find it somewhere else. And they thought it was because they just had needs. But the need was really a need for approval. A need to feel secure in a relationship and to have somebody want them. See, we think alcohol is strong, and it is. We think drugs are strong, and they are. But when Peter says be sober-minded, he's saying stop being intoxicated by your insecurities. Understand that you have a loving, heavenly Father who loves you more than anything you could ever imagine. And he has already given you that approval. And you don't have to live for it. I wrote it like this. It's one of the things I, I say to myself all the time. I don't have to live for the approval of man because the Son of Man died to give me the approval of God. I don't have to live for that anymore. You don't have to live for that anymore. And here's the other side of this. This is, this is one of the things that I, I have to remind myself to and I remind uh, a lot of people a lot of time is, is God will not bless the person you're pretending to be. That goes against his character. Why would he bless a posed image of you? He wants to bless the real you. He wants to open up doors for the real you. He wants to show you as the real you what really matters. I want to end today by telling you a story. A story of this guy named Tomas Martinez. Tomas Martinez was a guy from Chile. He lived in Chile, and he made a mistake. He wrote some checks that he didn't have the money to cash. And because he had wrote some bad checks, he had to escape from Chile, and he fled to Bolivia. And there in Bolivia, because he was on the run, trying to get by, he became a drug addict and alcoholic. He was known for begging on the streets. Meanwhile, his wife, she continued to live a quiet life in Chile. And though they had been a, a middle-class couple, she inherited a huge fortune a couple of years before she passed away. The two of them never divorced, and she never remarried. And since they had no children, Tomas was the rightful heir to millions of dollars. When detectives were hired to locate Tomas, they tracked him down into a bar to give him the money. 
Tomas realized that the men were looking for him, and he thought that they were there to arrest him for the bad checks. Tomas disappeared without a trace. He ran for his life, causing believing newspapers to speak of him in 2000 as a new millionaire, paradoxically not knowing his fortune. And Thomas was never found. See, today, friends, I believe that there are some of you in this room who are running. And you're running because you feel like you wrote checks to God that you weren't able to cash. You said, God, I'll promise. If, if you'll just get me out of this, I I'm, I'm promise I'll, I'll go to church every single Sunday. I'll try and figure out how to tithe. I'll go ask those questions. I'll do what I got to do. God, if you'll just get me out of this, I promise I'll pray. I'll read my Bible every single morning. And you wrote checks you couldn't cash. And you said, God, this was my last time. And then your last time became your second to last time. And then your last time became your seventh time. And you think because you've written bad checks to God that he is coming for you to punish you. But I want you to understand what Tomas did not understand. When God comes for you, he's not coming to punish you. When God comes for you, he's saying, I've got an inheritance for you that your older brother Jesus, my begotten son, gave his life to give to you. And today, I invite you to stop running. As a band gets ready to lead us in a closing song, the song talks about how we as God's people understanding the type of father he is, that that is what we begin now to not run away from, thinking, that, oh, I'm ashamed. But it begins to be something that we run to. See, shame says, oh, crap, I messed up. No one tell dad. God's grace says, oh, crap, I messed up. Where's dad? I got to go. I got to go, I gotta let him know. And today, I don't know what, what you messed up, what checks you wrote with your life that you cannot cash. But what I invite you to do today is to run to him and to accept him for who he actually is. To maybe come up here and, and, and I, again, as, a, as, a, as someone who has been wounded by a father and who is beginning to experience some healing by a heavenly father, I love to just pray with you. To come down here and just let's just pray together. And if that's you even in this room and you feel like God's uh, brought you some healing through a father wound, maybe you just come up here and you make yourself available. And again, like I said earlier, if there's one thing I know for sure, it's that God uses our wounds to heal other people. And maybe the healing that you feel like God has been withholding, he's been withholding because he said, no, I need you to be a wounded healer. Because that's what my son was. It's by his stripes that you are healed. It's by his wounds that you can be made whole. And your wounds can be erased because he was wounded to the uttermost and gave his life on a cross. So if you never put your faith and your trust in Jesus, you never entered into this family, there has been a way that has been made to you to enter into this family of God. And I invite you in that today to come forward. Maybe it looks like you, you entering into baptism, saying, God, this is, this is my next step. To, in the same way that you were born again out of the grave and, and coming up, I'm going to be born again and having my sin washed away through water and being risen again. We have everything you would ever need today to get baptized. I know that God is leading some of you. It's going to be really easy to let your wounds speak to you right now. Let the false identity speak to you. Let the fear, the anxiety, and the insecurity speak to you. But I pray over the noise. You hear the voice of your Father simply saying, Come to me. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for grace and mercy. We thank you, God, 
in the midst of our pain and brokenness, you are more real than we could ever imagine. God, I pray for the wounded, those who felt abandoned, those who were, who were physically abused, those who never got to meet a father, those who father lived in a, in a state or a country far away and all they've ever known in regards to fathers is distance. Would you show them, God, that you are right here, right now. You are everywhere where their feet go. You are with them. I pray for healing to happen today. Power is only made available to us through your poured out blood on the cross, Jesus. Would you draw your people to you?